Today, we are going to talk about something that I feel is pretty important, at least in my opinion, and I think you'll agree with me as we get to the end of today's message. I want to talk about the danger and the effects of giving authority to the enemy. When you're at war, I think we can all agree, I I think it seems pretty obvious, when you're at war, the last thing that you want to do is to give your enemy, your adversary, any advantage over you whatsoever. I mean, that defeats the whole purpose of going to war, of being at war. You want power. You want authority. That's the object. Here's the tragedy of the situation. Unfortunately, today, there are a plethora of Christians, of believers in Jesus, Yeshua, that are willingly giving their authority over to the adversary. And here's the scary part. No, they don't know what they're doing. No, they don't know they're doing what they're doing. I mean, you just think about this. this we're going to look at this concept today. And hopefully by the end of today, I think you're going to have a little bit better perspective on authority. What it means, how important it is, how to handle it, how to not handle it, how to not misuse it. I want to begin today by taking you to the book of Yehoshua, Joshua. There's a particular story, and we're going to utilize this story as the basis of today's message. As we come to the sixth chapter, uh, it's what I would call a magnificent war. Israel is going up into the land. They're across the Jordan River, and remember what, what we talked about before. There is no taking the land without war. Well, here Israel, they cross the Jordan. They're coming up into the promised land, and they're coming to take it by war. This is awesome. And the first person on the map that they come to is Jericho. Awesome, military fortified city. Powerful. Militarily speaking, this is not the city you want to go up against. But the Lord tells Joshua, I am giving this city into your hand. You are going to take this city. The only catch is, is there's a few instructions. I have a few requirements that you're going to need to follow. And we typically, we, we know these requirements. The men of war were to go in front of the Kohanim who bear the ark of the Lord. And they were to march around the city once a day for six days. But on the seventh day, they were to do it seven times. And we look at these instructions of the war and we study the story of, of how Israel went and attacked Jericho. And primarily, our emphasis is always on this aspect. This aspect of the instructions. But I want you to know, it's not the only thing that the Lord commanded them. There's a little paragraph at the very end, the very last thing that the Lord told them, right before they went into the city, the Lord gave them special instructions regarding the spoils of war. And this is going to be our focus today. And this is what is said in Joshua 6, verse 18. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, are consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, when you look at these instructions, these are explicit in regard to the spoils of war. And they're really twofold. Very simple. All the precious metal, even beyond the precious metal, the iron and so forth, 
All of it is dedicated to the Lord. All of it. But it's not just that. We also discovered that there is a strict commandment, abstain from every accursed thing. Anything that you find, it looks beautiful, you may want it, stay away from it. You are not allowed to take it as spoil. Well, as the story unfolds, Israel tells Jericho, or Israel, they they march around the city, they do their thing, the walls fall flat. Ultimately, what we find is Israel gains victory. They gain victory over their enemies. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. As as we come to chapter 7, we read the following. Look at this in chapter 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Yehuda, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Unfortunately, despite God's warning to Israel that they are not to take of the accursed things, we find one particular man does not heed these instructions. It was the man known as Achan. Achan did not follow the commandments of the Lord. He took of the accursed things. And as we continue, we're going to see the effects. This is where things get really important. We're going to see the effects of Achan's disobedience. Effects which are probably more vast than you might initially conceive. This is what we read in verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beit Aven, on the east side of Beit El, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. I want you to put this into context. Israel just went up to Jericho, defeated Jericho, and now they're moving on. They're taking the land by war. Now they're going to move on to the city of Ai. In verse 3, we read this. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for all the people of Ai are few. Very, very important to have this all into context is today. Joshua sends spies out. They look at the city that they're going to go and make war against, and they're saying it's militarily pathetic. They didn't even blink an eye. It's not fortified like Jericho was. Now keep in mind, having this all in context, they just came out from a military conquest of the century, literally tearing down the walls of Jericho by the thundering of God. What an awesome victory. Something that looked in the flesh impossible. And now they've turned their sights to I. And the men of Israel are looking at this going, this, this, is, this is a joke. This is not even worth our time. This is not even a concern of ours. Joshua, let's not trouble anybody. Send a few men out to the city of Ai. This is not a fortified city, and there's hardly any inhabitants even to protect it. All in all, the context here that's being painted for us is that this city is easy. It is weak. We are going to come in with no problem. Now here's, in verse 4, look at how things unfold. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. You get that? So they send their men, they send the top. With the, remember, he said two to 3,000. Well, they sent more, closer to 3,000 men. And here we're finding that they're fleeing from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate 
as far as the Shevarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. <laughs> this simple task of taking the city of Ai, taking, possess, uh, taking possession of it, all of a sudden has become a hellish nightmare for Israel. All of a sudden, a city that was militarily pathetic is now running down the nation of Israel, literally striking them down, we're told, striking them down and killing them. And not just that, but we're told, what was the effects of this? Of Israel going up against the men of Ai, now the hearts of the people melted. An enemy who is the weak of the weak, they could not stand against. Think about that for a second. An enemy that is the weak of the weak, they couldn't even stand against. Well, Joshua, I mean, this guy's left in a total state of confusion. The whole situation has Joshua completely beside himself, and I would say rightfully so. So what does Joshua do? He does what all of us should do. In verse 6, we read, Then Yehoshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and all the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads in verse 7. And Yehoshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord. What shall I say? Look at what he says here. What shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? See, Joshua realizes that they have no power over their enemies. I'm going to tell you right now, probably the most frightening thing that could ever happen to any army in war is to have that revelation, we don't have power over the enemy. It's one of the most terrifying, if not the most terrifying thing that can happen. I'm going to tell you something right now. When you're in war, and you're warring against spiritual hosts of wickedness, make no mistake, when you come up against that line and you realize, I have no power, I assure you, your heart will melt. Your heart will melt. You will be frightened exactly how we see it unfolding. The weakest of the weak and the kingdom of Satan will put you to flight. Just think about that. Well, as we continue in verse 9, Joshua is going to express his additional concern in all of this. In verse 9 we read, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will we do for your great name? Joshua is revealing the obvious here. Because they're being chased by the men of I who are the weak of the weak. He knows word is going to get out. Think about this. This is the proverbial hemorrhaging in the water where blood is gushing out of some uh, fish, another fish or whatever it is. And the piranhas smell the blood. And if you've ever seen those National Geographic shows where the piranhas come in, the water starts to quake. It starts to rumble because the piranhas smell the blood. And when they're done, there is nothing left. Joshua knows this. There's hemorrhaging. He is knowing that this defeat is going to awaken all of the piranhas, all the warriors throughout our lane. All our enemies are going to come. They're going to smell the blood in the water. And there will be nothing of us left. Nothing. And Joshua knows this. 
So the Lord responds to Joshua's prayer. And he says in verse 10, So the Lord said to Yehoshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things. What did they do? They took of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Going on to verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. We answered the question, why was Israel running from the weakest of the weak? Why could they not stand before their enemies? Simple. They embraced that which was accursed. They embraced the accursed things of God. And we continue, but they turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Now listen, this is the Lord speaking to Joshua. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. There's so many lessons here for us to learn. And this one specifically at the very end towards the pastors, the preachers, the teachers, the rabbis, the judges, the elders of all the various churches across the world. When you're praying and the Lord reveals sin, sin in your camp, you better take care of it. You better take care of it because what he says to Joshua, he warns Joshua, you don't take care of this matter, I will not be with you. I will forsake even you. If that doesn't put strike fear into your hearts, I don't know what will. This is good shepherds, good leaders. When sin is revealed, they take care of business. This is what they do. And why? It's for the protection of the whole community. Now, I really want you to look, I mean, just this far, just getting this far into this story. You need to start making this personal. There is deep spiritual connotation here that you need to draw away. I want you to ask yourselves, what is your position in war? Have you thought about it? Have you assessed your situation? What's your position in war? Have you taken of the accursed things? Have you embraced the things of the world, things that are abominable in the sight of God? Are you under the control and the authority of the enemy? If you're going to fight the good fight of faith, you desire to walk in victory, you're going to want to have power and authority over your adversary. And if you want that, you can't have sin in the camp. You cannot have sin in the camp. You cannot have sin in your heart. You cannot have sin in your mind. It has to be purged. There's a concept that I want to share with you that is monumental. So immense, it will revolutionize your faith. And I say that because it did mine. I love it. I mean, how many can you attest to this as you're going through Scripture and all of a sudden you get that aha moment? You get that aha moment. The bulb goes off on something marvelous in Scripture that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you and it is impactful to your faith. It impacts dramatically your faith and how you walk it out. The principle I'm about to share with you it was an aha moment for me. It did impact my faith. It impacted everything. It impacted the way I looked at life. It impacted the way I approached certain situations. Revolutionized my faith. And this is what it is. The enemy cannot have power over you unless you willingly give it. I want that 
to sink down into your hearts. This is one of the most empowering things that you could tell yourself, and it is true. It's biblically supported. This is one of the most empowering things to build your faith, to give you the confidence to go out, to walk, to stand in front of your adversaries, in front of the enemy. He has no power over you unless you willingly give Him that power, unless you willingly give Him that authority. There is a reason that Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul understood this concept that I'm sharing with you. This aha moment. It's so empowering for me to go out and uh, to assess and analyze situations that are in front of me and ask myself, am I giving my authority away? And, and is that what I'm doing? That dramatically impacts the way I'm going to move. Because guess what? I'm type A. I'm a power control freak. I don't want to give power up. I don't. You need to be the same way. I want to give you a couple of scriptural examples to build upon this concept to show you it is in fact biblical. And uh, the first example, I mean, we could talk about is I always like to go back to the garden. I mean, I could probably, probably, maybe this might be a little exaggeration, but I could probably teach just on the garden event for a year. Because I can keep going back and pulling different stuff at it and going at it different angles. The whole garden event is so epic to the faith and understanding the adversary and how he works. Epic. The more you study it, the smarter, the wiser you get. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. The more we go to the Word, the more the Lord opens our eyes. Amen? We'll go back to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to ask the question, did Satan have authority to just impose his power, his will, over Adam and Eve? Did he have that power? He did not. He did not have the power to do that. He had no power to impose his will, which was death and destruction. He had no power to do it. Adam and Eve were untouchable. Think about it. They were untouchable. That is, until they willingly gave Hasatan that power. Once they gave him that authority, oh, isn't that interesting, they were brought to total desolation. Understand something. The only play that Satan has, the only play that he had in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve was to seduce Eve, to seduce her into taking that which was accursed. Embracing that which was accursed. She partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was cursed by God. It was a bondle. She was not allowed to do that. Isn't that interesting? Because in our story, Ahan is doing the same thing. See, Satan keeps peddling the same tricks over and over again. Just the characters change and the books change. Ahan did the same thing. He fell into the same trap. Identical trap. Embracing that which is a curse. So Adam and Eve, they go from being untouchable, immortal, to being touchable to being mortal, furthermore, being cursed. Another great example is found in the book of Numbers in the story of Balaam and Balak over and over again. Uh, and I'm not going to put this story up here just for the sake of time, but over and over again, Balak, 
he runs to Balaam and he's crying out to Balaam, come and curse. Bring a curse upon the people of Israel. See, Balaam was powerful. Balak knew that whatever Balaam blessed was blessed and whatever he cursed became cursed. Balak was willing to pay anything. He was willing enough to give everything he had so that Balaam would come and curse. And do you know why? Go back and read the story. And it actually tells you why he wanted them to curse Israel. He wanted, and it literally says, he wanted to have power over them. Power. He wanted the power and authority over Israel so that he could drive them away. That's why he wanted them cursed. He knew they cursed. I gain power. I gain authority. So Balak comes to Balaam and come and do this, come and do this, come and do this. And what is Balaam's response? His response is in verse 20 of chapter 23, Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot reverse it. Cannot. Israel is untouchable. The adversary has no power over them. No matter how much money Balak would throw at Balaam, no matter how powerful Balaam really was, his hands were tied. And you know why? Because this goes all the way back to that covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is why Israel is untouchable. Nobody could have power over them. But here's where things get really, really interesting. If you just keep reading in the book of Numbers, as you come to the very next chapter, you read the story of Numbers 22, 23, 24. That's the compilation of the story between Balaam and Balak. The very next chapter, the first verse, okay, something happens. We discover Israel, who is untouchable, all of a sudden becomes touchable. Israel, who couldn't be cursed, all of a sudden is receiving curses. I want to show this to you. How is this possible? This is what we need to ask. Going to Numbers 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry. This is Israel. They began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Moving to verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moshe said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Just in the chapter before, Israel is untouchable. They couldn't be cursed. They couldn't be harmed. Balaam had no power to do anything against them. And now we find the exact opposite is happening. And I ask you, how? How has that happened? Someone going from untouchable and blessed to being cursed. Well, we discover the commentary in Numbers 31, 15. We're actually told the actual reason behind this. In Numbers 31, verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women have, call, uh, have caused the children of Israel, what? 
through the counsel of Balaam. Wait a second. Through the counsel of Balaam, the children of Israel have fallen to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. The very same guy that came out in Numbers 23 and told Balak, I have no power to do anything against Israel is the very same guy that brought curses upon them. How did he do it? Seduction. The same way he did it in the garden, the same way Satan seduced Achan in our story today, this is how he did it. He got, Balaam got the children of Israel to embrace the accursed things. This is the reality. You see how powerful this is? You see how powerful the deception is? To get you to embrace the accursed things is to get you to give your authority over to him. So this principle, the enemy cannot have power of you unless you willingly give it. I'm telling you, this is a game changer. It's one of the most valuable principles for you to understand when going to war. And I want you to be warned. Satan is going to try to get you to give up your authority. Absolutely. It's his play. He wants you to embrace the various accursed things. And think about how he might do that, because there's no one way. There are many, many accursed things, many things that would fall into the list of what God deems abominable that we should be staying away from. Boy, does that keep you on your toes. That keeps you in the Word of God to make sure, am I walking out of step with the Lord? I want you to think about some of the things that we have to deal with in this generation. Things like movies, TV, Internet. One of the most powerful gateways to open up for the devil to come into your heart to take control of your life to take control of your mind and your heart is through television. It's through movies. It's through the Internet. Hundreds and thousands upon thousands of images that are literally Satan is trying to pipe directly into your heart, that he is trying to pipe directly into your mind. He wants you to download this. As you're surfing on the Internet, he wants you to click that mouse to the immoral to pornography, to lustful sights, stuff to feed your flesh. He is after you to do this. He is coming to corrupt you. You know, one of the lessons, you know, my dad taught me a lot of good lessons growing up in a conservative Christian home. And as I'm coming into the teen years, you know, I was really involved with sports. Not all my friends were believers. I had this vast group. I had a lot of friends growing up, and I played sports, so this just... It is what it is. Well, growing up in a very conservative Christian home, um, uh, you know, my dad being a sports freak and I being involved in sports, we got the Sports Illustrated. We were subscribers to Sports Illustrated. Well, there was only one month I was concerned about of the year of the magazine coming out, and that was the swimsuit edition. I could never get my hands on it because my mother threw that garbage in the garbage. My mom would not allow that stuff in the home. Very powerful. But one day, I had, my, I had a bunch of friends over. We're in the garage, and he's like, you know, it's one of my friends, Danny, did you see the, the, the issue of Sports Illustrated? And I was like, I, I didn't know. My mom grabbed it. You know, I, you know, I'm a Christian. You know that, right? I mean, I wasn't ashamed. You know, I was, I was just like, you know, my parents are conservative. This isn't going to happen, you know. She throws that in the garbage. He's like, well, it's coming in the mail today. Because he had it mapped out in his house as well. 
Well, we go check the mail, and there it is. So we grab this issue of Sports Illustrated, the, 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 the swimsuit edition, and we take it in the garage, and you got a bunch of teenage boys ooging, laughing, and and, going, and my dad, it was so amazing how the Holy Spirit works. My dad got a sense that something wasn't right. And so he came into the garage. What are you doing? And out of terror, one of my friends threw the magazine, and as my dad opens the door, the magazine starts swirling across the floor, totally open. And my dad's like, well, I guess I don't have to ask what you're doing. The point of the story is my dad, my dad shared with me some amazing wisdom at the end of that. He goes, I want to talk to you. And give you a little background, and I'm going to get into this in a second. Give you a little background on my dad. My dad was a rock star. He, he traveled in a rock band. He opened up for huge venues, uh, you know, people like uh, Steppenwolf and the Monkees and stuff like that. And so my dad was a lead singer, and that, that was his background. And when he got saved, he got out of the industry. Uh, he pulls me aside, and he tells me, he goes, Daniel, i got to tell you something. You don't want to see those images. You think you do, your flesh does, but you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to purge all of that out of you. You will struggle this. The enemy will bring these things back up into your mind at the opportune time. I never forgot that. I mean, that really did hit me hard. And I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but I pondered it. I was like, I didn't appreciate the weight of what he was saying. But I'm telling you right now, he is right. The images that you allow to be downloaded in your heart. Yes, you can get saved. And this, is what, this was my dad's argument. He did a lot of things in the rock band that were not of God. He got saved. He goes, the images the enemy uses, he will bring them back. You have downloaded them. It gives him the ability to bring them back to your mind. And you have to take them captive. We have the power to do that. But I'm telling you right now, the more of these garbage, more of these images that you place into your mind and the heart you are going to struggle, my friends. We are not meant to be wasting our time with all these images that Satan's going to try to reoccur in our brain. How many of you like those pop-ups as you're surfing the Internet? All of a sudden, you get this, this tornadic wave of pop-ups popping up all over your... drives you bonkers. How productive is that? I want to tell you, you start filling your head full of ungodly images, you're going to have pop-ups constantly. It's counterproductive. You know, I've never seen such a glut of immorality, such a glut of demonic programming. All this witchcraft is coming at sorcery, pharmacia, all these things, all the shows. It's off the charts. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're not watching these, I trust, but you know they're out there. A show, somebody, I was just talking to some, a gal last week, I don't remember who it was. She was telling me there's a show called Lucifer. Just Lucifer, they're just coming straight out with it. There's not even in plain English. you got Harry Potter. you got all this demonic garbage coming out. And they put it in cartoon form. Let's make it look harmless, right? I mean, this is what is going on. Satan is running a propaganda machine harder than he's ever ran it before. Just a click of the mouse or a click of the remote, and you can be in a world of immorality, a world of iniquity before you know it, with thousands of images being downloaded into your mind that you are going to have to wrestle with, that you're going to have to purge. There is a reason David in Psalm 101, he says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Nothing. David knew the power of images. He knew the power that wickedness can have. Yeshua says the lamp of the body is the eye. 
And if the eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. You, you put in front of you darkness, and your eyes see it, they take it in, they put darkness into your heart. Do not lie to yourself. You cannot handle it. You cannot handle it. We were not meant to be equipped to handle wickedness, to embrace it and think that we're going to come out of it unscathed. It's not going to happen. What about music? I got to tell you, this is, this is a big one. This is, this is one of Satan's best tools that he utilizes. And we know that music is a, it's worship. It was designed for worship. Where do you think music began? It began in the heavens in Shemaim to worship the God of Israel. The angels worshiping the living God. Well, Satan wants that too. What kind of music are you listening to? You know, one of the stories, going back to my dad, being in a rock band, he was in a rock band at a very young age. And uh, 14, 15 years old, and I mean in a serious you know, state of, well, they grew up, you know, the musician world's really small, okay? Every, you know, the, the musicians that are going at my dad knew Prince and all that stuff, and uh, they, they all knew each other. And um, so a, a group of them went to a concert, and don't quote me, but I think it was Black Sabbath. Uh, totally demonic, obviously. Isn't that interesting, the name Black Sabbath? Don't tell me there's nothing godly about the Sabbath. And you have Satan coming out to debase it. Anyways, side note, they go, the group of musicians, a group of these guys, they go, and it's some of their groupies and roadies, whatever, they go to the Black Sabbath concert. And my dad was, he prefaced this story. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't saved at this time, obviously. And he goes to this concert, and one of his friends, and everyone knew this guy, he was into witchcraft. He was into the occult. He, he was a Satanist. And, and, you know, to my dad and his friends, they didn't take that stuff very seriously at that time. Uh, my dad wasn't a believer, so he didn't, you know, they kind of laughed it off and go, that's kind of weird, but he's a nice guy, you know, we'll hang out with them, and he, you know, likes the band and all that good stuff. They go to this concert, and I have a point to this story. They go to this concert, and the guy gets in there, and the stage is going, and the, and the band is playing, and... They're, at the, they're towards the back or whatever. I think my dad was telling me they're towards the back. And this guy has got his head looking up. And he starts laughing. And it was weird because my dad, said, my dad never did drugs. Even in the rock band, never did drugs, never drank, never did anything like that. He just stayed away. He didn't smoke anything of any kind. He didn't do any of that. When it, everyone there was 100% sober in his group. In his group, there was no drugs, there was no sounds like that. So he's sitting next to this guy, they're coming in, they're talking, but then he turns his head up and he starts looking into the rafters during this concert. And my dad will never forget this. He must have told me the story ten times growing up. The guy starts laughing. And my dad finally gets to the point, agitated, and he's like, what are you laughing about? He goes, don't you see him? And my dad's like, see, well, he's looking up. He goes, he saw the rafters, he didn't see it. My dad didn't see anything. He goes, don't you see him? The rafters are filled with demons and they're laughing. They're laughing. So my dad never forgot that. See, when he got saved, he realized that these venues and these rock shows are altars of Baal. They're altars of Satan. They're the gathering place of demons, and they're laughing and mocking at their worshipers. This is the power of music. I'm telling you, if you got music that is not right, get it out of your house, get it out of your car, get it out of your heart. Don't allow the devil to start sowing into you uh, this demonic stuff. I want, I, want, I want to remind you, Satan is willing to pay 
He's willing to cup the check to give you the desires of your heart. Whatever your flesh and its debaseness can concoct, Satan will meet it. Rest assured, he will cut that check. It's the proverbial Trojan horse, Greek mythology scenario, right? You know the story of the Trojan horse where they can't come in. It's a military fortified city, Troy. cannot be conquered. It cannot be conquered, cannot be scaled. There's only one way. Oh, isn't that interesting? We'll offer a gift. Accept this gift, but inside of it costs you your very life. It's the Trojan horse scenario. Well, when we're looking at our story today with Achan, it's the Trojan horse scenario. This is what Satan peddled to Achan. Accept this. This is a gift. You want this. Come. He allured Achan in so that Israel could be defeated. I want to go to Joshua 7.20. Ahan answered Yehoshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, can you say a cursed thing? This is an accursed thing. 200 shekels of silver to be dedicated to the Lord only. A wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels to be dedicated to the Lord only. What does he say? I coveted them and took them. I want to recall one of the first things that we read in today's story is the Lord said, get up, Joshua, Israel has sinned. And then what's he going to say? They have broken my covenant. They have broken my covenant. What did he mean by that statement? Well, we know right now it's highlighted. What is the covenant? What are the words of the covenant? Read Exodus 34. They are the Aseret HaDevarim. They are the Ten Commandments. What is the Tenth Commandment? Thou shall not covet. You stepped out of the protection of the commandments of the Lord. He embraced that which was accursed. And it comes at a mighty price because Achan is killed in the end. And so Achan goes on and says, And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with silver under it. Isn't that fascinating? Why did Achan hide it? He knew he sinned. Do you understand? This is not someone who is ignorant. He didn't know he was sinning. And then God reveals some special light to him. And he goes, oh, and then I'll never do that. No, no, no. Achan knew that this was forbidden, but the covetousness was just too good. The gift was too much. And he embraced that which was accursed. And he hid it. There's another biblical principle that you need to remember as you go out and you're confronted with things. And that's in uh, Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord's eyes roam to and forth throughout the earth. You will not get away with what you're doing. You may think you do it in secret. Here's the scary thing. The Lord will bring it out in the open. He will bring it out in the open, either in this age or definitely in the age to come. I want to move on to verse 13, Joshua 7, 13. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. I want to give you hope today. Because the Lord God gave Israel hope that day. And the hope was, oh, Get it out. 
Remove the accursed thing from you. Take it away from you. The hope is, and this is what's interesting, the hope is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel. I want you to understand, when John the Baptist went out, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeshua's first words in his ministry, Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Yeshua commissioned his apostles to go out to the four corners of the earth, they are going out to preach repentance and remission of sins through his name, Luke 24. Acts 17.30, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, Paul says, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a message of hope. It's a message of freedom. It's a message of liberty. Look at what Paul says in Acts, or what the Lord says to, to Paul in Acts 26. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open the eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and what? From the power of Satan to God. From the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you understand what the message, the gospel message does? It's a power play as well. It turns it on its back. The power that Satan, the authority that he had over you, is shattered when you call upon the name of Yeshua, Jesus. It is shattered. We gain power. We gain authority when we separate ourselves from the accursed things. It turns away the wrath of God. It turns away His wrath. This is where the breastplate of righteousness comes into play. What does the breastplate do? I mean, when you're in a war... It protects all the vital organs. All the vital organs against a knife, a dagger stabbing, against a sword, a strike, a mighty strike of the sword, totally protects all the vital organs in which you would die. It protects against fiery arrows that you can't see coming, that hit your blind spot and bounce off the breastplate of righteousness. This is how vital righteousness is. Righteousness is will guard you. Righteousness will protect you. The commandments of God are not there to oppress you. They're there to set you free. Proverbs 13, verse 6. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. When we stay within the lines that God has commanded, we are untouchable. That is empowering. I crave that. I yearn for that. I yearn to be under the shadow of Yeshua's wing. I yearn to be under his protection, under his authority, because nobody can conquer him. But I know Satan is going to be conquered. I don't want to be under his authority. Nothing good will come out of it. His demons will be laughing at us as we are in pain and suffering while our Lord mourns. Precious in his sight are the death of his saints. These are two different gods entirely. Two different attributes. There's an excerpt from the Torah treasury that I, I appreciate so much that really speaks to what we're, what are the point of where I'm going today. I want to share it with you. And this is what the rabbis say. Most people are servants of their passions, but the truly free person is the one who can control his desires. When the sage is taught, only one involved in Torah is truly free, and that's from... Perkei Avot, which is just the ethics of the fathers. 
they meant to say that only Torah allows one to free himself from the shackles of desire. I love this terminology, this imagery they use. From the shackles of desire. They're saying the desire, the fleshly yearning desires, the thing, these passions of the world, it is bondage. I agree with that. Free from the shackles of desire and truly exercise free choice. Without the Torah, one is not free at all. He is a slave, controlled by a master foreign to his better instincts. While intellectually he might have correct ideas of how to live, ultimately his master, his passion, will force him to act otherwise. Now, does this rhetoric sound familiar at all? It should, because what did we learn about what Yeshua said in John 8.31? Yeshua said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It will make you free. But Satan's peddling the lie that stay away from the Torah. It is oppressive. It is a curse. He's flipped it totally backwards. And the church has eaten it hook, line, and sinker. No. The truth. God's word. The words that he spoke. The Torah. He made his ways known to Moshe. Read Psalm 103. His ways will set us free. We stand in his commandments and we will not be moved. Like I said before, a righteous man can fall seven times, but he will rise back up because we're untouchable. When we're walking in the faith of Yeshua in his commandments. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your Torah. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, do what? Make me wiser than my enemies. This is going back to how I opened up today. We need the advantage in war. We need to maintain the power and the control. And how do we do that? Through His commandments, we get elevated over our adversaries. We rise up. We become wiser And He is not able to seduce us, to deceive us when we stand in faith in Yeshua. It won't happen. And He says, for they are ever with Me. I want to close with this verse. Ecclesiastes 9.18 Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Do you know what wisdom is? It is the commandments of God. Wisdom and understanding is the commandments of God. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. Meaning the fulfillment, the maturity of wisdom is you being obedient to God. Obeying what He has commanded. It's better than weapons of war. This is better than a weapon of war. Anything you could possibly pick up. Which ironically ties into what Gene said in his commentary. He doesn't trust in his weapon, physical weapon, but in this, in Yeshua. That's where the trust lies. I'm going to tell you something. I'll just close with this thought. It's time for us to take back the authority. That's what time it is. It is time to go and take back the authority. Men, in your homes, you go back and take back the authority. Are you praying over your wives on a daily basis? Men, I want to charge you with something. Do not leave your home without laying hands on your wife and praying over her, praying with her, praying to Yeshua, giving Him praise and glory, praying for protection of your mind and hearts as you guys are separated during the day, as, as, whether it's the men that goes off and work or the woman, doesn't matter. Pray for the protection. If you are not praying for your spouse, you have not stood up and done what you are called to do. 
you are opening a door. Do not open a door for the adversary. Go and take back ground. Do not give anything to him. Clean out your house. You should be praying with your children. Twice a day, I get, I, when I get up, I pray over my family. I do not leave the house until I pray. Even if they're sleeping, I lay hands. And you know my wife, she likes her sleep. So she's typically in and out. It doesn't change anything. I go to war. I am praying over her. I'm not leaving the house. I'm praying over my children. I'm not leaving my house. And are you teaching your children how to pray? Because if your children don't know how to pray, they don't know how to war. You know, if something happens in our household, my girls know what the answer is. Pray. Daddy, we need to pray. See, those are kids that know how to fight. Those are kids that know how to war. And at night, we all kneel down towards Jerusalem and we pray as a family. This is so instrumental. You want to learn the art of spiritual warfare? You want to rise up? You want to have power? You want to have good marriages? You want to have good relationships with your children? You have to do this. You have to do this. This is the thing that you have to do. I don't care. If, if your life is too busy, I'm scared for you. Because your value system is totally in disarray. And it tells me the enemy has his foot hold in your house.